My name is Bruno Waterfield. I'm the Brussels correspondent of the Times. So I'm going to be chairing this discussion. It really is quite striking today how Russia is seen as a threat. It's seen almost as an all-pervasive. It's everywhere. Its tentacles are everywhere. Donald Trump is in the White House, perhaps. Uh, some conspiracy theorists would argue um, because um, of Russia. Some people even sort of wouldn't mind if the CIA got rid of him like America used to do in Chile and places like that. Um, any election um, that produces a result that upsets the political classes, there will be dark murmurings of Russian influence. Russia seems to be all-pervasive, all-powerful. It seems to be um, absolutely everywhere. And what we're going to try and do with this discussion is perhaps to pull back some of these more sort of lurid, Manchurian, candidesque uh, kind of conspiracy theories and try and examine what's really going on. Is it a new Cold War? Is Russia really everywhere? Are its tentacles of power and influence and disruption uh, behind all these political developments? Or is Russia perhaps much weaker than the conspiracy theories would suggest? Does Russia loom large, not because Putin is a strong leader, but because Western governments uh, lack direction. Now, we've got a really good panel. First of all, we have Lukasz Pawlowski, who's the managing editor and columnist at Kultura Liberalna magazine, which is a liberal uh, magazine. He's an award-winning uh, journalist. We, we had a good discussion, a good healthy discussion uh, last night, so I'm, I'm convinced he'll be a brilliant speaker. Um, and then second, also on my right, we have Mary Dijewski, who uh, writes for The Guardian, The Independent, speaking as another journalist, has a, an amazing track record, has been in the right place at the right time at some very big moments in history, and she really, again, uh, knows what she's talking about. Third, on my nearer left, Adam Thompson, who's the director of the European Leadership Network, a think tank. He was a diplomat for 38 years in the front line, Moscow, Washington, New Delhi. I knew him in Brussels when he was the British ambassador to NATO. And in Brussels, we get a lot of briefings from diplomats and a lot of briefings from officials. And quite often, your ears just close, the pen stops writing, and you have to sort of prop your eyelids open. Adam's briefings were absolutely brilliant. And, and, and journalists uh, were, were, would, would, would uh, push each other out of the way to get to those briefings. Our last speaker will be Tara McCormack, who's a lecturer in international politics at the University of Leicester and very much a, a public intellectual in the sphere of international relations. And she does a lot of debate. She speaks on the radio and other media a lot and really is good at making the whole area of international relations really come alive in my experience. Lukash. Right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me and presenting me in, in this manner. I was asked to provide you with some Eastern European or specifically Polish perspective on the relations with Russia, so I'll, 
I'll go with, uh, with that mainly. So in the latest edition of, of the Global Attitude Survey that was conducted by the Pew Research Center and published in August 2017, uh, people of 38 countries were asked about eight major threats that they see in the contemporary world. Globally, it was ISIS, climate change, and cyber attacks and the state of global economy that came, uh, came at first three, four places. But in Poland, however, fear of ISIS was closely followed by the fear of growing Russian influence. That was the 68% uh, of the people named growing Russian influence as, as, as the major threat, one of the major threats uh, facing uh, the country that was the largest percentage in all of the countries uh, that were uh, included in this, uh, in this panel. Well, coming from a country that has been under Russian, some form of Russian domination for the most uh, part of the last 250 years of its history, this might be hardly surprising. But there are also many other reasons why I believe there is a lot to be worried about and why even some Western countries might be wise to actually follow, uh, to get, uh, to follow Polish example on, on this one. Uh, first of all, uh, in one of the articles that you were suggested to read before this panel, it was on the website, uh, Maria Lipman says that in January 2015, uh, negative perceptions of the West in Russia rose to the highest level ever recorded in the history of Russian public opinion polling. 81% of the people surveyed had a negative perception of the United States uh, and 71% of the European Union. And only a couple of years before, uh, those numbers were significantly, significantly uh, lower. Uh, for example, uh, one year earlier, only 44 percent uh, held a negative view, 44 uh, percent of Russians held a negative view of the United States. That's one thing. The second thing, uh, which is, uh, I believe, of, of interest is that in 2011 and 12, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's approval ratings dropped significantly, uh, well, for Russian standards, to 60 percent uh, from 80. Uh, there were mass protests uh, in, in late 2011, which challenged his legitimacy. And then, suddenly, uh, back in 2013-14, the approval ratings are back at the level of 80%. Why is it so? Well, uh, they, they, uh, they significantly shifted after the conflict uh, in Ukraine broke out. So that suggests that, you know, uh, this is a good way. The conflict in Ukraine pr uh, proved to be a very profitable in terms of regaining public support for Vladimir Putin. And if it proved profitable once, this strategy might be used uh, again, I believe. But isn't Russia weak? Or already Bruno said so. Uh, that we know that uh, during the press conference in December 2016, last press conference of that year, Barack Obama emphasized that Russia cannot change significantly uh, or weaken the United States because it is a smaller and weaker country. Uh, Obama said that Russian economy doesn't produce anything that anybody wants to buy. Uh, except from gas and oil and arms. Uh, we can all, uh, to that, we could, uh, we could add that Russian economy is the size of Italian economy, that its population is shrinking, that the life expectancy is way lower than in the uh, most uh, European countries, and that the inequalities between urban areas around Moscow and P Petersburg and all the, all the rest of the country are growing. So why should we care? Well, 
first of all, precisely because when the country is weak, when the political power is weak, it can become more dangerous because having an enemy is the best way to rally popular support and uh, take the public's attention away from the problems facing the country. Uh, secondly, in the conversation I had with, uh, after the war in Ukraine broke out, I had a conversation with Anne Applebaum uh, who said, uh, and I asked her this question, why should we care if Russia is that weak? Just wait and, and wait for it to collapse. Uh, she said, there are two advantages uh, Russia has on the global stage. The first lies in the fact that Putin and his people possess political tools we cannot even imagine in the West. It is as if Barack Obama was not only the president of the United States, but also the chairman of Exxon, uh, owner of the New York Times and all the major television networks as if he ran FBI and CIA and on top of that he controlled the Congress. That's the kind of power Putin and his entourage have. They own the country. The second thing they have, and this factor is strangely underrated at the moment, is nuclear arsenal. Uh, Applebaum said Russia may be a sick man, but it's still a sick man with a gun. So the third issue is that some people in the West uh, say Russian's aggressive behavior was caused primarily by Western politics uh, and by the fact that, uh, for example, uh, NATO expanded during the 1990s. Uh, that means we interfered with Russian sphere of influence and that's the reaction we get right now. So, for example, Stephen Wald, the Harvard lecturer and foreign policy a columnist, wrote that open-ended NATO expansion has done more to poison relations with Russia than any other single Western policy. Uh, his solution, some sort of appeasement. Well, I cannot agree with, uh, I, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, to that I can only reply, reply by quoting from another of the articles that we, we were supposed to read before the session. And the quote goes, no reset can be successful regardless the personality driving it because Putin, Putin's Russia requires the United States of America as its enemy. I would say it requires the West as its enemy. Also, maybe we will discuss that later, or maybe some other panelists will raise this point. Also, the nature of the conflict has changed. And so I would just drop in the, the term nonlinear war, which I hope we will get back to. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, and thank you to uh, Lukas as well, because you're now going to hear a very, very different view from me, almost the polar opposite. I'd also just like to say in preface, because I think there's some misunderstanding about this frequently, I am not Russian. Um, I'm British. Um, my name comes from, um, it's my married name, and my husband is American, um, second generation of re refugee parents from Russia and Ukraine. So I don't have any sort of personal stake in any of this. I've got five points that I'd like to make. The first is that the question as it's posed, Putin's Russia, new Cold War, presupposes that if there is such a Cold War, then it's basically all Putin's fault. And I think that even if you do accept that relations at the moment are pretty bad, that Russia and Putin really can't be blamed either exclusively or even take the, 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 an equal share of the blame. I would say that when Putin came to power first, 2000, 2001, um, when he returned to power, 2008, and again now, the running in terms of um, hostility 
has actually been made by the West, that Putin at every stage in procedure has not only been amenable to improving relations, but has tried his best to do that, um, only to be rebuffed. And I would absolutely agree with the, um, the person quoted by Lukash about the expansion of NATO being that absolute, um, one of the biggest mistakes made by the West, um, certainly since the end of the Second World War. Um, I think it's done more to poison East-West relations, more to um, trap any leader of Russia, not just Putin, in a corner than almost anything that anybody has done. The second point I'd like to make is that one of the arguments often made about Putin's Russia is that basically it's aggressive and expansionist, and that Putin's ambition lies in trying to restore, um, if not the boundaries of the old Soviet Union, then the boundaries of Imperial Russia. Um, I would say there's nothing further from the truth, that you can see practically everything that Putin has done since he came to power is about trying to settle the, the post-Soviet borders around Russia, and that any action that is seen on our side as being aggressive, we talk about an invasion of Georgia, we talk about um, meddling in Syria, we talk about an invasion, annexation in Ukraine. These are all very different, but that if we take Georgia, there was an EU report which found that Russia actually did not initiate that conflict. When we look at Syria, how many years was it, two years, three years, that the West basically had a complete um, free reign to do something positive in Syria, and it failed. And it was only after the West failed um, that Russia intervened. And Russia intervened with a legit legitimacy, having been invited by the um, legitimate government of Syria as recognized by the United Nations in a way that the West completely did not. Um, Ukraine, I would say, is much more complicated, but again, you can see Russia's, Russia's action in Ukraine not as, as it were, initiated aggressive action, but as a measure of panic and weakness and desperation about the future of Russian security in response to what they saw as Western um, predations and claims to Ukraine. Third point. There's a whole sort of litany of accusations about um, Russia's um, maneuver, military maneuvers, um, training exercises, near misses over the Baltic or around the UK, incursions into other people's airspace. First of all, I'd invite you to ask where the information comes from, from that. It's not because of journalists like me and Bruno going out into the field and looking up and saying, look, there's a Russian plane in, in, intruding into someone else's airspace. It is because that information comes from the Western alliance. It comes from military and defense interests on the Western side. And if you look, there are equal and opposite actions by Western NATO forces in exactly the same way. I think about three, four years ago, um, Cameron was asked a direct question after some great publicity for one of these near misses um, off the British coast. He was asked um, how many such incidents there'd been. And he, he said that he'd actually taken the trouble to go to the MOD and ask. 
and he said that there were no more incidents in that particular year than there had been in previous years. This was not something that was growing. It was a state. Fourth point, relations with the United States. Yes, they look absolutely dreadful, and the hue and cry in Washington um, creates an appalling atmosphere which makes it impossible for... Trump as president to do what he'd hoped to do, which to my mind was one of the more positive things that Trump said he hoped to do, which was to try, no, try to improve relations with Russia and with Putin. And basically the combined institutional forces in Washington have prevented him from doing that. But if you look at what's actually happening, I think you can actually say that relations are rather better than they appear on the surface, and that for all the actions that have been taken on either side, the diplomatic expulsions and all those sort of things, that actually they are at a very low level. There's a degree of damage limitation going on there, which leaves relations at the very top level. Putin has hardly said anything negative about the United States, Trump himself, since he came to office, despite all this stuff in Congress, has said almost nothing negative about Russia. And you can say, oh, there you are, proof of collusion. I would say no. It means that both Russia and the United States, at the very top level, are hoping against hope that there will be a possibility for improved relations, and they don't want to do anything to damage that. Fifth point, very, when I'm going over time. Um, I would say that if you look more parochially, that most of the new Cold War, um, totally irresponsible Cold War language and accusations has come as much from the UK, maybe more from the UK, as sort of little brother, a follower of the United States. If you look at the rest of Europe, we've seen President Macron playing an absolute diplomatic blinder in relation to practically everybody. Um, relations between Russia and Germany, Russia and the other countries of what we call old Europe um, are actually not nearly as bad as they are between the UK and Russia and Russia and the United States. Thank you. Adam. Thank you, Bruno. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I find myself uh, somewhere between Lukas and Mary, uh, but I'm not going directly to address either of their points uh, unless I have time at the end. I wanted to make uh, three very broad points. The first is that whatever we choose to call it, the present situation between Russia and the West is a Cold War. People, people don't like that term because they worry that it deepens the sense of division, uh, because they're right that it's not like the 20th century Cold War. Uh, it's not uh, Russia trying to create Russia-supporting regimes around the world or a, or a new Warsaw Pact or even a simple competing propagandas. But it is a, there is a military dynamic of action and reaction that is now underway and is quite hard to stop. And both sides have an escalation doctrine that leads you all the way up to nuclear exchange. It is actually ideological in a sense. It's, it's not a, a set of formal ideologies, but opposing worldviews, uh, two camps living in their own ideas bubbles, lots of stereotyping, lots of propaganda, uh, very much win-lose mindsets uh, in the West uh, as well as uh, in Moscow. 
Uh, it goes international, it's proxy wars, uh, there's covert competition, uh, damage to each side, subversion, or at least a belief that the other side is doing that to you. And it is now sustained. Uh, in NATO, the uh, Crimean annexation and Russia's uh, intervention in eastern Ukraine has uh, influenced the alliance from top to bottom. There is no aspect of NATO business that is not touched by it. Second point is that the situation we now find ourselves in, whatever we want to call it, is at least as dangerous as the 20th century's Cold War. And that's not because Russia is going to invade us uh, or take down our critical national infrastructure with cyber. Russia acts or believes it acts for essentially defensive reasons. And here I'm probably more in Mary's camp, except that uh, the defensive behavior often looks quite aggressive. Uh, and the situation is, is dangerous because it's still very nuclear, as Lukas has reminded us. There are very high risks of miscalculation. Uh, the situation is less familiar to decision makers. They are themselves more autocratic than during the Cold War. Uh, we're much less rehearsed for crisis. Uh, Russia rewards some of its uh, operatives for risk-taking and is quite opaque. And finally, and quite importantly, there are really high opportunity costs to a renewed Cold War. Fantastically expensive. Defense spending is now rising on both sides. The political bandwidth for all the complex problems that we face in the world is shrinking. Uh, and the dynamic affects the future direction of both Russia, not a successful state, and the West. So my third point is a rumination on what to do uh, about this. Uh, very schematically, uh, I think we can think of three options. The so-called Yalta approach. This is the old-fashioned, tried and tested way. It's great powers, uh, deciding for smaller powers, spheres of influence. It's what Lukash referred to, Stephen Walt, uh, partitioning Ukraine or ideas like that. I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think we have it in ourselves now in the West to allow that kind of thing to happen in Europe, even though we find it much easier to imagine partitioning Syria, for example. Uh, so there's a second category, uh, which is what my leadership network tends to work on, uh, which is risk reduction. So trying to reduce the cost of this Cold War, trying to minimize the, the level of danger that we face, attempting arms control. Uh, but this is, to me, still feeling very much like a, a 20th century effort. How do we, in fact, deal with the pace, the complexity, the novelty of geopolitical change? Uh, and can arms control and treaty agreements actually make a difference. And my last, uh, and this is something that I value views on because I have not thought it through deeply, is something like a guarded respect for difference. Respect because, as Tom Friedman reminds us, humiliation is the most underrated factor in foreign affairs, and Russia is deeply humiliated by the 1990s. Guarded because others, including Russia, will take advantage of you if you don't stand up for your own interests and values. And an appreciation for difference, 
because it's getting harder for the West to create its own reality, the, the, the Bush administration's uh, conceit and hubris, and our behaviors have unintended consequences. So more diplomacy, more, as the US Declaration of Independence has it, respect for the opinion of mankind, decent respect for the opinion of mankind, and just traveling, hopefully. And I will get to Mary and NATO expansion uh, in questions. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> Tara. All right, thank you very much, Bruno. Um, uh, hard uh, to follow on from three very good points here just made. Okay, but I will try. So, when we say Cold War, what do we mean? Okay, well, there, there, within that term, there is some sense that we are in some kind of almost inevitable clash or conflict of interests and wills, politics, ideology. So what is it that the West is up against in this conflict? So there are accusations, as we know, as Bruno said at the start, uh, hacking, interfering in elections uh, from America to France, Germany, Catalonia, the Brexit vote, putting Trump in the White House. So accusations of a vast deal of uh, political interference also Military aggression. Russia, it's argued, has overturned the international rule of law with its annexation of Crimea, an act that's uh, threatening the liberal world order. Russia, in this uh, framing, um, is the military aggressor here, threatening NATO allies along the border. Uh, the Baltic states and Poland, in this kind of understanding, are in peril from invasion and occupation. So certainly, there seems to be no end to the Kremlin's reach. You know, the phrase is Cold War 2.0, but this is the Cold War on steroids, really, if one sort of believes all of it. The problem is, however, that um, very little of it is true, or very little of it is as it is generally presented. And I do think, this is just an aside, and maybe something people want to come back, we can talk about later. I do think, apart from a few journalists, um, and Mary being one of them, uh, our mainstream media here and in America has really been criminally negligent, I think, in its duties, in the way that this is being presented to us. Now, I have lost count of the number of here is the smoking gun headlines for proof of all of uh, Russia's nefarious activities. But it's a very little of it turns out to be true. Russia didn't put Donald Trump in the White House. Trump won because of a whole series of well-understood social trends combined with the fact that Hillary Clinton was very unpopular. And the Democrats knew this. Uh, the shattered sort of memoirs, as they're called, or the... Uh, discussion of the campaign called Chattered by two very friendly journalists is very good. So this, and also we did, ha we have had some dodgy gerrymandering and sort of voter registration things that went on in America. So Trump won because of a whole set of very well understood things. 
It wasn't Russia that did it. We constantly have big stories that appear. For example, most recently, you know, Russia actually interfered with state voting systems. That was the big headline about three or four weeks ago. And then, of course, a couple of weeks later, uh, there are smaller headlines saying, oh, no, Wisconsin says, no, actually, there was no intervention. Uh, we know now, just it's just come out last week, the, the infamous Steele dossier, you know, the tales of Trump and prostitutes in Moscow, uh, was essentially uh, commissioned by a company paid that the Democrats had paid to write this report. Um, so, American intervention, uh, Russian interference in American politics, I would say, you know, it's just not true. Very little of it is true. Now, as for Brexit or the Catalan uh, referendum being a Kremlin op, I don't really even know what to say. I think it's very, it's harder in Britain and in other European states to uh, really kind of promote that line. You know, politics are, clo are smaller here in Britain. You know, we're much closer to it. I mean, if you j seriously believe that 75% of voters in Boston, Lincolnshire, voted leave because of uh, Kremlin-sponsored Facebook ads or Russia Today, you know, I, I don't really know what to say about that. Again, the Brexit referendum, it's a result of a whole set of social trends we know about. Equally, you know, the Catalonian crisis. The head of the French cybersecurity agency, Guillaume Popard, excuse my accent, says that the, the hacking that occurred just before the French election was nothing to do with Russia. He, there's an Associated Press interview in which he says that the uh, election hacking was so generic that it literally could have been anyone. You know, we've had crazy, head, laughable headlines recently. You know, the, the German elections actually saying, where are the Russians? You know, so, so I think that most of the discussion about Russian political interference is simply not true. Now, the idea, moving on to the military issues, which are real, the, but I would say the idea that the Russian annexation of Crimea was a sort of appetizer for the main course of invasion of the Baltics and Poland, you know, the idea that Russia will invade NATO countries and embark on an occupation and war that would make Iraq look like a success and bring about Russia's own destruction is, you know, frankly nonsense. Now, what ha we can agree or disagree with Russian policy in Ukraine, and I am what the French calls a sovereigntist. I support sovereignty. I do not support the annexation of bits of other countries. However, I do understand it. It is a largely defensive action. But the main point here is that the idea it's a sort of precursor to a kind of rampage across Europe is, frankly, very problematic. Now, I think we're reaching a point of absurdity in the kind of so-called Russia gate. You know, Russia used Pokemon Go. For those of us with small children, we know much about Pokemon. It used Facebook puppy ads. It spent, you know, $100,000 worth of Facebook ads in America. I mean, you know, I think it's a, was a, I can't remember how many billions were spent in the American elections. You know, the thing, if, if we're threatened by $100,000 worth of Facebook ads, 50% of which were shown after the election, we really are in trouble. So. To me, 
I think it's a kind of last days of Rome madness when one reads all this. So what is going on? Yeah, one, all right, one, I'm wrapping it. This is my last point. I think that, uh, to go back to Lukash's point, it is us who need the enemy, uh, the political enemy. I think we have such a profound political crisis in America, a profound political crisis, less so in Europe, um, but we have such a profound political crisis that the American political class would rather burn down their own house right, than understand their own society and engage with their own political problems. And I think that to me is the, that to me really is terrifying that we have a political class that would rather destroy themselves and every and their own country. Um, so that would be my final. Thank you. I just want to get some to and fro on the panel just to explore, see where we are, and then out to the audience. Lukash, who needs the enemy? Why, why, why is it? You, you, you <coughs> said yourself and explained very eloquently how weak Russia is, but you started to say that, that Russia is also different in terms of the political tools that, that Putin has. So, so is this an enemy that the West needs to find, perhaps a West that has lost some direction? Mm -hmm. Or is it a real enemy? Um, and are there the different, legit, the different um, I, I still quite like to get a bit more of a flavor that you bring to this as being Polish, because Poland is different from Britain in terms of its proximity and history with Russia. Well, I, I could say maybe it's not an enemy, but it's definitely an adversary. That's uh, one point. Uh, the, the second thing uh, is like we were told that uh, Putin's actions were defensive actions. Well, it depends how do you define a defensive actions. If you uh, just <laughs> punch somebody in the face before they can do anything, you can say you did it in your own defense because you felt threatened, and that's a defensive action. But I would, uh, to, to, to be very concrete, back in 2005, Vladimir Putin famously described collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That's how many? 12 years ago. Munich Conference, 2007, and here's a quote, for, a quote from Putin. The United States has overstepped its borders in all spheres, economic, political, and humanitarian, and has imposed itself on other states. The US have created a unipolar world. Uh, no matter how we beautify this term, it means one single center of power, one single center of force, one single master. Uh, Zappa 2008 uh, to 2009, these are military, uh, military exercise conducted regularly by the Russians. Uh, do you know wh what did they exercise? That was a nuclear attack on Warsaw. Uh, that was the, the story uh, that in, in these in this exercises. 2014, Valdai Club uh, speech by Putin. We are sliding into the times when instead of the balance of interest and mutual guarantees, it is fear and the balance, balance of mutual destruction uh, that prevent nations from enga engaging in direct conflict. This is not a defensive kind of talk. This is an aggressive kind of talk. Mary, it, is, it does sound quite aggressive, does it? Well, I'd like to start with the absolute basic first principle, which is this quote from Putin about the collapse of the Soviet Union being the greatest geopolitical <coughs> catastrophe of the 20th century. This has been quoted so often, and it's A, been mistranslated, 
Second of all, it's been taken out of context. And third of all, Putin has tried and tried to go back on this, to try and explain what he meant. And nobody has taken a blind bit of notice. Um, to go for the, for the, the, the translation element first, um, what he actually said was that this was the one of the greatest. Now, you may say that this is, that, that this is hair splitting and doesn't mean anything. Um, but it's a different form of the, uh, uh, of the word in Russian. And it puts it in a s slightly less of this sort of gigantic um, single historical. What Putin said he was talking about, and when you look at the, uh, the context where he was speaking, he said that he was talking about it being a catastrophe for Russia and Russians in the sense that what happened was the whole destruction of the economy, total collapse internally, and lawlessness inside Russia that he wasn't talking about, looking forward to saying that we should, we, we should resurrect the, 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 the Soviet borders or the Soviet Union. It wasn't about that. It was about accepting that this is what has happened, but being, if you, if you like, regretting that it had happened in the way that it happened. Um, and I think you can, uh, he, he's, he's tried to explain this, I mean, you know, I've, I, I, I've heard him twice, three times, um, trying to clarify that this wasn't um, nostalgia for the Soviet Union, it was regret for what had happened um, in, in the way that it happened. And I think that we've allowed, as it were, this misinterpretation to dominate everything we've thought about post-Soviet Russia. Um, Adam, you said something that was quite, <clears throat> we said a lot that was very interesting, um, but you, you said one of the things that the West um, can't create is its own reality, and if you look at, in terms of strategy, or perhaps the absence of strategy, Syria, Libya, even Iraq, Afghanistan, there seems to be a void there in terms of the West, in terms of its own reality, in terms of any sense of mission, the ability to project uh, power or, or values, as people uh, call it now. So, so is, it the pro is, is, one, is part of this picture the fact that the West can't make its own reality means it's sort of in that absence, it's using Putin as, a, as some kind of crutch or a substitute, an adversary or an enemy or a rival that kind of fills that void, that it's easy to compensate for the fact that you've lost some of that mission and coherence? I'm, I'm not sure it's quite like that. Um, let, let me see if I can answer that briefly. The experience of Iraq, I was at the United Nations trying to get that second resolution through uh, in 2003 in the Security Council, or Afghanistan, where I've spent 12 years of my career working on it. Uh, or indeed Libya, all show that nation building is far more difficult than the uh, West of the early 2000s uh, ever imagined. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. Changing a country's culture through foreign intervention is a pretty difficult task. Uh, and that clearly drove the Obama administration's thinking to a significant degree. The United States, the, the, the world's largest economy, its greatest superpower, could no longer afford uh, what it had taken on, let alone new adventures. So the pullout from Iraq and Afghanistan. So militarily, I think we've learned 
that the West can't just barge in and set up uh, things in its own likeness. Uh, I'm more optimistic about the West's positioning and less despairing uh, than quite a lot of current commentary about the, the, the West in general, because I think we create a tremendous amount of the world's reality through our soft power. Uh, and although that is now more contested uh, than at any time since the Second World War, it's still dominant. Uh, so my answer to where we go is really to take our own values more seriously, to stick up for them more, but in a more sophisticated way that appreciates that other people don't actually share the way we think uh, and the values we hold. As for the way we treat Russia, uh, I think it is, a, it is a mixture, I'm sorry to say, of the United States especially, but to some extent the United Kingdom and the West more generally requiring an enemy. And some of that has to do with uh, the, the, the defense industry interests and uh, the, the machinery of government. Uh, and some of it is about genuinely bad Russian behavior uh, that is really quite alarming. So, Tara, you painted a picture. I wanted to ask you about, you know, how to proceed, because even with the picture you've painted of the, the, the sort of extreme alarmism, the, the breakdown of political consensus um, and some of the democratic traditions and norms in the West are feeding into this, um, but it does seem that there is considerable scope for miscalculation because after all we are talking about relations between states and the military aspect as well and a country that is on the defensive, is weak um, and sometimes chaotic even. How do we, where do How we go? How would you, <laughs> so what, what's, the, what's, the, the, what's the way well, forward? I really don't know, I mean, I have to say that, not just complimenting Adam because he is here, the European Leadership Network for example is a really great think tank uh, that produces a lot of very serious, sober reports and discussions on international affairs. You know, so it's a quite a sane voice, but there are these sane voices are far few and far between, and I genuinely don't know, because I think the consensus in the media is so strong, and said apart from a few uh, journalists such as Mary, I'll just give you an example. Now, uh, about three, a month ago or something, uh, it was uh, revealed by Jane's intelligence that Russian defense spending is being cut by 18%. Now, I'm sure as Adam knows, there are many, this, this, this statistic in itself, uh, you know, is subject to debate and, you know, there's obviously always a discussion about, well, what exactly do we mean about defense spending, et cetera, et cetera. But now to me, this is quite a big deal, okay? Now, if we are saying that Russia is a military aggressor, and, you know, I'm very happy to agree that annexing Crimea was not, was bad behavior, then my question would be whether does it, is it the first step in terms of occupying Poland, the Baltics? No. But to me, this is quite significant, okay? Russian defense spending being cut by a pretty significant amount now we saw at, this did not appear anywhere. And there is a level of complicity 
at some point that a lot of journalists, I think, said at the start, are being criminally negligent here because they're simply repeating uh, what is essentially government... Uh, you know, they are trotting out the government line. So I do think... So I genuinely do not know where we go because unless we can actually begin to have a bit more of an open, proper discussion, I don't know how... Adam, we can be very, yeah. very quick. Two sentences. I, I think if the US Senate let Trump extend new, the New START deal, which is the strategic nuclear deal between the United States and Russia, you could begin to create a new dynamic. Nuclear and respect from the United States matter tremendously to Putin. Uh, and uh, that would provide some foundations for more constructive behavior on both sides. Okay, I'm going to come out to the audience. If you want to say it as your enemy, you use first names. So it's Putin, not Russia. It was Saddam. It was Assad. So we heard here quite a lot of Putin's, not Russia. And if you really want to use name, you better use Dugin. If you, it's a philosopher who actually now is really most influential on President Putin in Russia. Now, what we heard recently in Valdai Club, that. The focus is on China and Russian relationships with China, and we should look at START two, where they uh, have most of the forces in Kamchatka. Um, the, the relationship with the United States should be looked through the prism of relationship with, with China. In, in Europe, it would appear that everything is sideshow apart from Balkans and Turkey. So I would put to you just to look at the Balkans and Turkey as a key issues for Russia. For what I read in in their um, in their uh, speeches and their books, uh, this is what they interest them, not Poland. I'm always wary of drawing parallels with, um, with with the past. If you look at um, the the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was spending too much on defence. It had a very weak economy. You could say that's the situation with Russia at the moment. I mean, the EU can quite easily outspend Russia simply because it's got a larger uh, GDP. If the Russian economy collapses. Which, and if oil prices go down, it might. Is there a danger of Putin doing something um, reckless to try and improve his, um, his popularity? And is there, a, a miscalculation has been mentioned, is there a danger? I mean, like he might try another invasion, he might, um, you know, inflict damage on a, um, on a West tripwire force, therefore create problems. Is that going to be the danger? Do people see, well, one, is Russia likely to go the same with the Soviet Union and collapse? simply because of the, um, its economic problems, and is there a danger of Putin doing something daft, really by miscalculation, rather than uh, any other? Okay. Excellent presentation. Lucas, let's turn the Mary and Stephen Walter argument in reverse, because they would argue that any Russian leader, autocrat or democrat, would play hardball to protect Russia's vital interests in its traditional sphere of influence. How would you respond to the argument if the Russians put missiles in Cuba, expanded a military pact to include Venezuela, helped bring down pro-American governments in Mexico, how would Washington respond to Russia's interference in its sphere of influence? It seemed to me all of the panel catalogued the failures or the weaknesses of Western institutions and Western media. What they didn't do, though, is examine the situation in, so in Russia. In, our, in the West, we have many institutions that already challenge our, our, our governments and our institutions. But 
I see an absence of such in, 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 in Russia. And I, I live in fear of meeting young people when they tell me from the Russia that they've spent a lot of time hearing the BBC de being demonized repeatedly and the, in, and the impossibility of standing up to situations in Russia. I think one of the um, frustrations of the, looking at it a little bit parochially, but the, the Brexit vote was that um, foreign policy didn't figure at all. So all we, all we talked about was, was um, immigration and so on. So there was a, uh, it, it was almost as if it was off bounds. You couldn't discuss these things. They were too difficult. Um, but I think if you got into any discussion with somebody, it was implicit in the Brexit vote that it was a challenge, not just about membership of the EU, but also about membership of NATO. Uh, you know, that never came out in, in, in any of the debates, but it is implicit within it because the two are totally interlinked. Every country that joins the EU then joins NATO. Uh, and I think the, the way I would see it is that we need to open up, uh, particularly through what's happening with Brexit, open up the discussion more because uh, Russia... Uh, together with China and the rest of the developing world is looking to break out of the Cold War uh, uh, history, uh, things, really it goes back to World War II and I, I think, you know, it's the West that is refusing to break out of those, uh, the, you know, that, that, that sort of uh, idea. We can't let go of the past and that's why there is this present conflict with Russia. So I think um, uh, Brexit, to me, is a good start. And then we can start to look at a, uh, some, some, some new interesting dynamics. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst who was responsible for covering the ex-Soviet countries and transnational organized crime. Russian speaking, transnational organized crime is a different thing qualitatively and to a certain extent quantitatively, it is an arm of the state in a very uh, strategic way. Question one for Mary and Tara. Um, when, crucial point, when did you accept that the Soviet Union was responsible for the Kachin massacres? And um, secondly, um, what do, does the panel have any comments on um, Russian influence and its nature on academia in the West? I'm particularly referring to the Times and Sunday Times articles a few weeks before Christmas last year about Cambridge and uh, situation there. I was present at one of the meetings of the group involved where I saw very serious and in my view totally unfair criticism of the BBC for its allegedly anti-Russian coverage of the conflict in Ukraine and when I sought to defend the BBC um, I was accused by people there but not by Christopher Andrew and his colleagues I must stress of being a leucocyte. Thank you. One of the things that really strikes me, actually, I grew up in the old Cold War, when it was the Soviet Union, and one of the things that always struck me at the time, and very different from now, is actually people had a lot of sympathy and respect for 
the Russians in the Soviet Union, the peoples, the subject peoples of the Soviet Union, people had a lot of respect for Russian culture, chess, music, um, literature. People felt sorry for Russians living under a despotism. And one of the things that's very striking about the current period is how that just doesn't exist. Russia is not treated with any respect at all. People have obliterated uh, Russian literature from our memory, it seems, uh, quite often. Russia is presented as a sort of uh, tabloid, basket case, Slavic, barbarian country. Um, it's one of the, the, the aspects I find really, really quite unusual about the current period. Anyway, right, enough of me, you. Just, just to echo that point, there's actually lots of sympathy for Russia in that wonderful children's story, The Railway Children, which is in fact First World War time, isn't it? Um, yeah. Children. My son here is home educated. He called me in to uh, watch a broadcast on BBC TV recently about four rifles who are at the moment deployed in Estonia. And there was lots of coverage about the war games that they're doing uh, in the forests to the east of Tallinn and um, uh, pretending that Russian soldiers or saboteurs are coming across the border and uh, scampering after them. Um, so I suppose my question is, uh, are we teaching the next generation to be scared of the Russians? What is the ground level thoughts of Russians about the West? How do they feel about us? Are they afraid of us? And if so, is that because of the media? Right, Crimea has been Russian since 1783, and the name Ukraine comes from Polish for border. It's very easy for we islanders to know where our edges are when your feet get wet. I come from defense, and I got an interest in Russian with O-levels. But things got quite exciting when I was down a bunker playing war games when Chernobyl goes up. Things started to change a bit after that. Now I'm fighting Brussels, a city of little green vegetables and a rude statue. And if there is no Brexit, I'm thinking of going to Russia because it's a huge country of 11 time zones. We could set up better trade links. I know, they should have put a younger tail on me when I went to Moscow, but people are always being tailed. Look at all these things that turn up on the internet nowadays. People think it's a surprise. No, it's a big country. I want to trade with them. What's death to a man is life to Russia. You are talking about Russia and its sort of, um, its inf sort of its increasing influence in the West. But is the change in attitude towards Russia more of a generational thing? So the people that grew up in the West during the Cold War have more of a fear of Russia, but sort of my generation is going maybe the opposite way, the f that there's less fear of Russia there. And because we didn't grow up in the Cold War and we didn't see the impacts of it had on uh, not just Russia, but other nations. Thank you. I wanted to ask two, uh, two questions. The first, building off of Adam's proposal for guarded respect for difference, which I thought was really interesting and uh, at first thought really spoke to me. And then secondly, I wondered, though, whether a guarded respect for difference would involve sort of unraveling and stepping back on a lot of the commitments that have been made in international law throughout the 20th century, including to human rights. So my question was, what would that look like practically? And, and second, um, I would love to unpack a little further what, uh, what kind of differences we would see in sort of a modern day Cold War, given the fact that America now has much more of a strong man. Are we seeing sort of the rise of strong men in both the West and in Russia? And how might that influence the way that these interactions are going to play out? Okay, I'm gonna bring panel 
back in. I would say something about the Brexit point, that most um, new countries joining the EU also join NATO. I mean, that, that, that is true, but it's not true that membership completely overlaps. Um, there are countries that are in one organisation, not, uh, not, not in the other. Um, which predates um, the main expansion of, um, of the EU and NATO. One commentary, sometimes it's the other way around. First you join yes. uh, NATO, most of the countries first joined NATO, then the European Union, the yes. case for Poland and other Eastern, uh, Central European countries. Yep. And we talk about the, um, the West refusing to break out of the past. I mean, I think to an extent that's true, but the generational point, I mean, I'm tempted to agree and have a lot of sympathy with the generational point that it's something um, that the, the sort of Cold War attitude is something um, residual and that it could change. Um, and I think that is true also on both sides, um, because if you think of how many Russians now travel abroad who never, tra never traveled abroad in Cold War times, um, but you can also you, you can actually argue the other way, um, where you can say that actually increased um, familiarity um, with Western countries and um, maybe um, increased familiarity of um, Westerners with Russia by going there, though less so, um, actually doesn't necessarily um, foster or, or always foster any greater sympathy. That's it for um, now. There's That's a it direct, direct no, no, question that was back. asked about Katyn <laughs> that I'd like to answer. Uh, well, you did it really quickly. When did, as it were, you accept that the Soviets were responsible for Katyn? I always accepted the Polish um, account of what happened at Katyn. Um, and I did so because right through the Cold War period, I was absolutely in the front ranks of Cold Warriors. Um, it's only after the collapse of the Soviet Union that I have become, as it were, I, I, you would say that I've gone over to the other side. I wouldn't say that. I would say that I've actually recognised that the Soviet Union collapsed. Okay. Um, well, there was a question asked, uh, isn't it the same as uh, if the Russians intervene in, in Central America or Southern America? No, it's not, I believe, because, you know, you uh, just look at the history. It, there, there were huge popular movements against Soviet domination in the region. And then after the 1989, uh, people democratically uh, spoke for integrating with the West, right? You had numerous elections, you had different governments, uh, the policy in all these Central European countries was still the same. Let's join the NATO, let's join the European Union, this is our insurance policy. And there was a, an overwhelming consensus uh, of, of doing so. So it's, so it's not like United States intervened in Central Europe to bring those countries into its own sphere of influence we wanted to join. So when I hear those arguments saying that maybe that was a mistake, uh, well, I, uh, I shrivel because uh, what is the alternative? Let's imagine the alternative history of, of not actually uh, expanding NATO and European Union. Do you think that your relations with Russia would be better, that they would be satisfied with what they got? No, they, they, they would make more or other demands. Why? Because geopolitical interests uh, of Europe on the one side and uh, integrated Europe on one side and Russia on the other side are simply different. Russia wants to deal with uh, separate European countries, as I say, separately because it, uh, it, gives this, uh, it, it gives them a better negotiating position and we are best served uh, when we act as one. That's my point. Thank it's you. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, for Margaret Thatcher famously phoned 
uh, Gorbachev. The West was not united, actually, on the reunification of Europe. Many people in the West were very alarmed at the changes uh, in borders, the wall that falling. That is true, and that's why I'm so afraid of, of getting this sentiment exactly. back into the Western yes. European so I think I think I think that's actually, I think that's very important. That, that moment, that moment was hugely significant in terms of European politics. People haven't even really digested. Reunification of Germany has not yet been uh, digested at all, either institutionally in the international order um, and certainly not uh, politically or ge geopolitically. It was, in a, it was an amazing moment. And it was in a moment that did horrify um, the establishments. I mean, Thatcher's response was by no means unique. It was mirrored by Mitterrand, um, uh, Mitterrand as well, and if it hadn't been for the fact of, of uh, uh, I mean, you know, if, if Germany, if coal had actually gone to the EU and asked for reunification, we'd probably still be talking about it. Tara. Um, yeah, so many things to come back on, but just, <laughs> God, we are slightly mystified by that question about, you know, when, when will you accept about the, the USSR's misdeeds? Well, as Mary said, yes, I always have. It, and actually, yes, the BBC is extremely biased. So I don't have a problem with that. Is there a Russian influence in academia? No. I can tell you that as someone who has always been a vocal critic of most uh, Western foreign policy and uh, Western framing of the international sphere, I'm very much, you know, there are, there are a few of us. We are in a minority. Um, so no, there isn't Russian influence in academia. Um, but what I'd really like to actually respond to is that uh, point about Brexit leaving the EU and why not NATO. I mean, yes, that would be my position, actually. And, but whether one agrees with that or not, what I do think Britain has not done, and this is something that I actually do look at in my academic work, we, with the end of the Cold War, Britain had to attempt, but it didn't. It really, we really needed to actually start to think about what are our interests. What are our real national interests here? But we haven't. We've kind of avoided that, I think, since the end of the Cold War. Um, but I think we really do need to rethink our foreign policy. But part of that is linked to having a proper public debate. And that's quite difficult because the media, I think, uh, does not, you, you know, the media has a very, very, very much follows kind of government lines on certain aspects of foreign policy, not all. But certain, so I agree with you, but we really do need that debate. Let's start genuinely talking about it. What are our, our interests? Why was it in our interest, sorry, to support jihadis in Syria? It's not in my interest. I don't think it's in any of our interests. You know, so we, 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 I would love that uh, debate, you know, that we start talking about this in the UK. Adam? Um, I'm not going to respond to any single question, but I think touch on Balkans, Turkey, collapse leading to crisis, opening up discussion more, transnational crime and so on. I, I, I just wanted to come back on Lukas's point about what is defensive. Uh, and what's considered legitimately defensive is very differently understood in Moscow, London, and Washington. Uh, and that leads to an awful lot of trouble. Russians would say that Crimea, Eastern Ukraine was defensive. Uh, Russians would say that uh, the West has intervened far more 
in other countries' business and has had even less respect for international law than Russia does. Uh, Russians would say that, yeah, okay, so they meddle in the Balkans uh, trying to stop Montenegro joining NATO, but that's nothing different from what the West does in a whole series of countries. Or they would say that cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee is no different from what they think they're suffering from the United States' cyber capabilities. Uh, my point is that we see these things really differently. We get terribly bothered by Russia's lack of respect for truth. Uh, we get deeply upset by Russian manipulation, uh, which we don't think we engage in. I don't know, buying other, buying political party influence in France or whatever. Uh, even though we may, to Russians, appear to be manipulating in a different way. We think we behave differently on cyber attack, for example, where there's no doubt at all that Russia is responsible for a certain amount of quite aggressive cyber behavior. The TV Sank attack in France is often cited. Uh, so I think we need, uh, this goes back to guarded respect for difference, if you like, to be a little less on our moral high horse about Russia, uh, but no less determined to defend our interpretation of truth and acceptable international behavior. In the present day, still in Russia, there is shown to be support by multiple polls conducted by both Russian and foreign news agencies, support for the policies and the premiership of Joseph Stalin when he was still in power. This support is most prevalent actually amongst young people in Russia who seem to um, kind of miss the days of a strong Russian international um, presence. Given this strong support, do you think there is any way that Vladimir Putin can afford not to act as a kind of a new man of steel? And if he tries to reconcile with the West, is that just going to be too weak for the people that he is ruling? So in terms of improving relations with Russia, do you think that one of the conditions should be basically for Russia to end its support, for, well, not just support, but really engineering of the ongoing uh, sort of guerrilla warfare in eastern Ukraine? Having also been somebody who came out of the old Cold War, which was actually a lot simpler in terms of the fact it was a bipolar world. I just wondered about Adam's thought of risk reduction, how that can possibly be achieved um, with what is happening in the rest of the world, with China, North Korea, and so on, which come, brings us back into how do we manage all these very complex relationships um, when everybody is getting their own nuclear weapons, and just to pick up on the point, well, we should get out of NATO. If we did, we would certainly need our own independent nuclear deterrent, and I'm not <coughs> sure that that would be um, pleasing for everybody on the table there. Thank you. Following on from yeah. that question, last question really, um, and we've spoken a lot about NATO, I'd like to ask the panel, what is, stroke, should the future of NATO be, and other transnational alliances? We have discussed the efficacy of 
cyber warfare and attacks, but is it not really the principle of the attacks that it, we should be focusing on as opposed to the eff efficacy? I'm going to bring the panel back in to conclude. One of the things that just has come up a number of times now is this idea of, of, of guarded um, respect and, and, and uh, Adam, I think you quoted the Declaration of Independence. of Independence. That seems to be a sentiment and a sort of, sort of humanist spirit in a way that seems rather alien to the discussion at the moment. So that's, I, I'm interested in that if anyone wants to reflect um, on, on um, that a little bit or whether Russia is somehow irredeemable. So it is an enemy and the only way to deal with an enemy, as Carl Schmidt would have said, um, is, is war. On that note, Tara. <laughs> okay, <laughs> leading on from Carl Schmidt. I think to carry on a bit from uh, Adam's point, um, now I would argue that, I would sort of disagree or agree, disagree with Adam, you know, I would argue that all the things that we accuse Russia of we do do it. Now, cyber, which is, again, something I work on in my academic life. Now, all states... Now, I've no, I'm perfectly happy, prepared to accept that uh, there, would have been, there may have been some Russian inter uh, attempts or that Russia was behind the phishing exercise, John Podesta's emails, but we don't know that. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. Now, we are all doing it, okay? I think that is the fundamental point. People may or may not have heard of Stuxnet, which is the American-Israeli worm that uh, attacked Iranian nuclear facilities. Now, we are all doing it. We, it is true, have overturned international law in the West. Russia cited the responsibility to protect when it annexed Crimea. Now, this is a specific doctrine of humanitarian intervention that explicitly says sovereignty must not be a barrier anymore. So the world is actually more complicated and the, we as a possibly declining power in the world and America and other states also intervene and um, overturn, you know, kind of intervene in states uh, both physically, we also uh, do that into, uh, digitally via cyberplets. Now, one of the things that's often said to me is, oh, great whataboutery, you know, which is basically a way of kind of shutting down debate. But it's not, to me, it's not whataboutery to point out, hey, we do these things too. It's simply, it's political reality, you know, and we need to know about that in order to judge our own actions and other actions. You know, we know, I was just rereading re an article recently, the CIA is very active, always has been, as we know, suddenly we on the left think the CIA is our friend. The CIA, for example, was training KLA soldiers in Kosovo. This was an article actually in the Sunday Times. You know, so we, our secret services, American secret services, we too, intervene and destabilize uh, states, both overtly and covertly. Now, what would I like? I'd like us to stop. I'd like Russia to stop. I'm not trying to say, oh, so it's okay. No, none of it is okay. But the point is, this is political reality. And there's a real refusal, often certainly when one reads the media, 
to even discuss kind of our own actions and policies. And I think that's a profound policy problem. So to go back to this idea, I think we really do need to begin to rethink our foreign policy, think about our interests and so on. But the first step towards that is also having a genuine kind of public debate about what we do, what should we do, you know, what role should we play in the world? And I guarantee, sorry, Bruno, not, I guarantee <laughs> that most people, that, you know, there's not really a public appetite for intervention, for example, polls, you know, that, but yet our political elites like it. So, you know, we really do need an open debate about what our role should be in the world. Thanks, Adam. Uh, three disparate points. One, just on cyber, I think it is about principle rather than uh, just efficacy. Uh, there is a measure of West Russia agreement that the laws of war apply to cyber. Uh, it's much, much harder to police that. But it's an area where more diplomacy would be worthwhile. Second uh, is NATO, and partly because I promised to come back to uh, Mary on this. Uh, I'm just colored by uh, my appreciation for what it's worth of Europe's history. In the 20th century, Europe was the bloodiest continent on the planet. And one of the reasons why we didn't spend the second half of the 20th century killing each other was NATO. I still think that NATO's most important role is not deterring against Russia, but deterring against uh, all of us who are in NATO uh, from doing dreadful things to each other. Uh, and for that reason, despite the uh, collateral damage to West Russia relations, for example, I would want to argue for the continuation of NATO. That makes a point also about the, the earlier question on, on generational difference. I think the, the, the really profound difference uh, in, in generations in this country is the fear of war or no fear of war. Uh, and I think we need to fear war much more than we do. For the last 25 years, it's been discretionary and it's been over there. It hasn't been destroying our families and our lives, but it could if we get it wrong with Russia. Uh, and the last was just to go to the question on, on guarded respect and, and does that unravel international law? Uh, no, uh, I, I don't think it does, but I do think we need to recognize that international law is very contested. It became acute uh, for us and certainly for me as a diplomat over Kosovo. Uh, we had uh, an appalling humanitarian uh, situation uh, in the Balkans we badly wanted to do something about it. We were under pressure from our media, so to do, and Russia would not allow a Chapter 7 Security Council resolution. So we walked around that uh, in the 90s, and that was the start of a Russian narrative that the West doesn't respect. That's a, a fearfully difficult diplomatic problem to resolve. Uh, my own organization, uh, hosts Russia-West discussions about international law, uh, and the differences of view are very deeply and genuinely held. I don't think we should give up on our point of view. Uh, I do think Russia violates worse, but uh, it ain't easy.
that's it. Brilliant. Thank you. Mary. Right, I've got three very quick points and one that I'd like to go into a little bit more detail. Um, first, to go back to the NATO question, I mean, my view is that NATO should have been disbanded um, in response to the disbanding of the Warsaw Pact and that there should have been a replacement security architecture. Um, for Europe. Now, I mean, there are lots of reasons why this didn't happen, including so much else was going on at the time. Um, but I think that we're going to have to revisit that. Um, second, um, one of the earlier questions related to um, Russia and China as the new sort of axis. Um, I'm not at all sure about this. I think that Russia-China relations are much more um, difficult than it looks from our perspective. And I've just read a very, very interesting article that um, by a professor in Singapore, the RSIS. Um, and when you look at it from the Eastern perspective rather than the Western perspective, then Russia starts to look much, much more Western with its future in Europe, not with China. Third point, um, reference was made to the BBC programme Behind the New Front Lines. Um, I felt that was extraordinarily inaccurate, hugely contentious statements made, um, and some downright um, false statements made. Um, it followed um, a programme about a year ago called The War Room, um, which also, um, th th this posited a, um, a fictional um, Russian attack on the Baltic states um, and showed people, as it were, um, game playing that particular um, scenario. I think both were hugely irresponsible in the way they were done and they should have been far, far more um, cautious and accurate. Um, so I think when, you, when you're saying, is there a sort of fostering of fear of Russia, um, at least with those two programs, I would say yes. The point that I'd like to go into slightly more detail about is there were several questions that were about Russia's weakness and the, um, as it were, nostalgia for Stalin as a strong leader and whether it would be dangerous to Putin to be perceived as a weak leader. Um, I think that it would be dangerous to Putin to be perceived as a weak leader. Um, and I think that um, to that extent, um, the relationship with Trump and the sort of hopes that Putin, among others, expressed for better relations, that is uh, what's happening in the US is actually quite dangerous for Putin because he has a, a certain investment of political capital in improving those relations. Um, and if things go even more badly wrong than they currently do, then Putin will look weaker than he currently does. Whether a Russian weakness or Putin's weakness exposed by the West would lead to recklessness, I'm not sure about that. I think to talk about Putin specifically, he is... Uh, it may not look like this, um, and I know he's been referred to as a risk-taker. Um, I don't think he's a risk-taker or adventurist at all. I think he's very, very cautious, um, and that he's erred very much on that side um, since he came to office. Um, but I do think that if there was a crisis that made Russia look weaker than it looks today, that Putin's position would be in danger. And the, 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 just the final point on that, um, how the West is perceived in, in, in Russia... The West is perceived in Russia as hugely strong and te technologically and economically um, vastly um, richer than Russia. And I remember when I was in Russia about a year ago, 
um, there was a lot of talk about you know, Russian aggression and the threat to the Baltic states or Poland, whatever. And there was a front page in one of the, um, one of the as it were, establishment um, Russian papers, um, which looked exactly the same, a mirror image um, of the pages that you get in the Western press, which showed a map of Europe with the arrows pointing from Europe rather than from Russia. Um, and the headline was something like um, the West's push um, towards Russia. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, um, the, a couple of times we, we heard that is, is Russia going to invade uh, Central European countries or Baltic countries, and uh, it was said that's ridiculous. I agree. That's that's probably uh, it's probably not going to happen because Russia cannot afford to it can afford to invade. It cannot uh, afford to, to maintain those countries. But it's not the point. Uh, because the nature of the military conflicts has changed and it's no longer about the battlefield and one army against the other one uh, as it was maybe during the, the first Cold War. Uh, as you somebody said, it was a, a simpler world with two camps, political camps. Now it is uh, Valery Surkov, uh, one of an advisor to, to uh, Putin, calls it a non-linear war uh, of which cyber attacks and disinformation are uh, major tools. To put it simply, it's not unlike the Cold War that you have Russian political elites uh, trying to convince you, the West, uh, or, or the rest of the world, uh, that Russian political system is better than the Western one, that communists are better than the capitalists. It's not about that. Now the, 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 the point is to convince uh, to convince you also that both the Western's political system and Russian political system are equally corrupt, right? We are bad, but look at them. So when I hear all those uh, whataboutery that Tara referred to, that's exactly playing into Putin's hands. That's what I believe. That's exactly what, uh, what they want. And does Russian political elites really believe that, you know, Russia may be bad, but West is equally bad? Well, just follow their money and look when, when they are, where they are sending their kids to school, where are they buying houses, where are they keeping their money? And, now, and then you're going to get the, the answer whether they value their own political system and the West uh, equally. Uh, so, so that's one point. The, the second uh, point, uh, we were told that Russia, at, at some point, Russia was humiliated during the 90s, and that's why we get this, that's the, the, why we get this kind of policy. Well, who was it humiliated by? Because I would say that mostly by its own in, incompetent political class. They ran a, a political system that was ineffective, uh, that was going to get bankrupt for many, many years. And it's no, lo no wonder that they lost the geopolitical position in the 90s. It's, it's simply as, it's as simple as that. So it wasn't so much humiliated by the West. It just humiliated itself to a certain degree. Uh, and Ukraine, that's the last point I'd like to make. Uh, we were told that, you know, uh, annexing Crimea was a bad policy, was, was, was a move that we should not support. Well, it's not a bad policy, it's a bloody war. It's a war uh, that you have in, the, in, in, in Eastern Ukraine. So it's, you cannot really mm, refer to it, well, we should, we should condemn it, but let's, let's get over it. It's like after Brexit, the, the only comparison com that comes to mind uh, to me is like, after Brexit, the United States decided to to 
to get a part of, of, of Great Britain just to secure its military bases. That's the kind of, and then uh, started a rebellion in Scotland. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing we are dealing here. It's not a bad policy, it's a real war. And I was told here, uh, last sentence, uh, to give you a Polish perspective on, on the relations with, uh, with Russia. So I'll finish with uh, that, that one sentence that I believe that every meter further away we get in Poland from NATO and the European Union, uh, we get one kilometer closer to Moscow, and I would certainly like to avoid that. Thank you. Thank you. Can you thank the panel, please? <laughs>